This week's episode of A Cast of Kings is brought to you by Hover.com. When you have a great idea, you want to secure a great domain name for it, find a perfect name that represents your project by going to Hover.com slash fire. This week, our promo code is Hover.com slash fire. John Robinson, the title of this week's episode is Fire and Blood. Uh, and this is a line that Maester Pycelle says during the episode, I believe. He says something along the lines of how the Mad King was consumed by visions of fire and blood. Uh, but any thoughts as to why this episode is named Fire and Blood? Um, I believe that those are the House Targaryen words. And also, you know, I guess it starts with the dripping of the blood off the sword. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ends with Fire and, and Daenerys. Very so. good. Yeah, the, the circle is complete. Go to hover.com slash fire and get 10% off your first purchase. everyone and welcome to A Cast of Kings, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series Game of Thrones. I'm David Chen. I'm Joanna Robinson. And together we're reading book one from George R.R. R. Martin's The Song of Ice and Fire entitled A Game of Thrones. Find more episodes of this podcast at GameOfThronesPodcast.com uh, and you can also email us at acastofkings at gmail.com. Find us also on Facebook at facebook.com slash acastofkings where you can comment on every week's episode. Uh, and we are at the end, John Robinson. Uh, we have reached the end of our season one rewatch and book club. Uh, and we hope people listening have enjoyed this season. Uh, and we hope to be back next season as well. Uh, hope you guys who tuned in are able to patronize our sponsors. Uh, they'll keep us uh, coming back to this podcast indefinitely. Uh, but, uh, yeah, John, it's been quite a ride this week. We're going to be talking about season one, episode 10 entitled fire and blood. Uh, and we will be spoiling everything through the show, but we will not be spoiling anything that's in the books that hasn't been covered on the HBO show yet. Uh, so yeah, and we'll also be talking about everything, uh, through the first book of, uh, Song of Ice and Fire. So, that's what we're going to be doing today on A Cast of Kings. Uh, this episode was directed by Alan Taylor, uh, who I think we've, we've sung his praises before as a talented uh, Game of Thrones director. Uh, and it's written by Benny Alphen Weiss, who wrote the vast majority of episodes this season. Yeah. Uh, which I don't think it continues quite at the same pace in later seasons. Definitely not. They, yeah. they bring on far more writers to sort of lighten the load yeah. as the scope of Game of Thrones gets bigger and bigger. Definitely. Uh, so, yeah, uh, it, this is, you know, as good as Baylor was in as, as an episode, I feel like this episode was also uh, a, a great achievement uh, in, you know, the history of television. And we'll get into why exactly uh, in a bit. But uh, I guess let's just dive. Oh, actually, before we begin, Joanna, do we have any f- feedback we want to talk about? I forgot to ask. Um, I guess, yeah, I do want to talk about one comment we received, mostly because this person went to the trouble of writing the same exact comment 
uh, twice. <laughs> so I'm going to give him, uh, this is from uh, Luca over on the Facebook page. Um, and it's, we keep talking about how the baby, uh, Cersei and Robert's baby has been retconned out of existence. And Luca, Luca wrote this comment at least twice. I might have seen it three times. He's, he's been pretty persistent that we get this message. So I'm going to read it. Um, he says, Cersei's dead infant with Robert wasn't retconned out of existence. In those days, you would never count a dead baby as one of your kids since the mortality rate was horrifically high. In her prophecy, Maggie the Frog names the only three kids that mattered, those who survived infancy. Just as in A Feast for Crows, Maggie naturally didn't mention Robert's aborted son from A Game of Thrones in season five. She didn't mention the first season's dead baby in that society. Those were equivalent. When writing the flashbacks... Weiss and Benioff had two options, being faithful to the lines in the book, thus not mentioning their invented baby, who had to be ignored if they wanted to abide by customs of that medieval-like society. Though it would mean they would confuse a few among us fans who remember the dead baby, but aren't aware, unaware of the fact that dead infants weren't ever taken into account. Or, changing the lines, thus angering book fans, and also introducing an all-too-modern perspective on children, just to not confuse those of us who remember the black-haired baby, but don't know, it doesn't make sense to mention him. I think they made the right choice, not only for most of the audience, but for the consistency of their world. Brian Cogman, friend of the show, confirmed this. <laughs> and this is a Brian Cogman quote. Maggie's just speaking of the three official kids who lived and were known, etc. The black-haired baby was kept quiet. Look the quote up on Watchers on the Wall in this article in particular. There's a link over on our Facebook page to Watchers on the Wall interview with Brian Co or quote from Brian Cogman. Uh, I'm not sure that that addresses precisely our concerns, but Luca is sure they are. And, Luca, and Luca's argument essentially boils down to, well, of course the prophecy woman wouldn't have included people in her uh, dead babies in her prophecy. I think right. it was or children that died because to her those would have been the same as children, no children at all. I guess uh, so. Which I think is a bit of a stretch, but you know, to each his own. I think we can say. So, uh, and really, that is what uh, this season of A Cast of Kings has been <laughs> about: is picking over this like tiny minutia in the show. Uh, Welcome so, to the world of book readers. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Um, well, why don't we talk briefly about that? Uh, actually, before we uh, get to this episode, which is what has been my experience reading the book along with you, and I will just say this: that reading the book along with you this season has given me an enormous appreciation for what you do to, for the podcast every single week. Uh, simply because it takes usually more than an hour, usually hours. And there's all this detail in there that uh, I basically ask you to call up uh, you know, in an instant on the actual podcast. Uh, and you do a, a pretty good job most of the time. So uh, I, I just think it's extraordinarily difficult what you've been able to do. And uh, now having gone through the book reading gauntlet, uh, I have, have an even, even greater appreciation of it. So, Thank you. We both know that I messed up uh, fairly regularly. I, I don't recall you ever making a mistake, but okay. Oh. But that's half the joy of this podcast Yes, is yes. telling me when I'm wrong. But um, what I will say is that over the seasons of working with you, I've come to a place where I start to anticipate what questions you're going to mm, ask me nice. and make sure to do research. I'm not always bang on, but I'm really proud of myself when I'm like, ah, he asked the question I thought he was going to ask. So, Very good. Uh, anyway. I, I think uh, the only other thing I would say is that this – 
uh, whole season has given me a, a greater appreciation for both the book and the show. Uh, just reading the book, you see all the detail, all the backstory that was put in there that didn't make it into the show. Uh, and then rewatching the show, you see all the ways they adapted it to make it more efficient, uh, to make it more powerful. Uh, and you know, we're going to talk about some of those elements this episode. Uh, so uh, overall, I, I, like for me personally, it was a very worthwhile experience, and I hope that at least some of that translated for our listeners. So any other thoughts about this uh, rewatch and, uh, and book club for season one, John Robinson? No, it's been really fun. Yes. Absolutely. A lot of work, but really fun. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. All right, well, let's get into this week's episode. Uh, so this episode entitled Fire and Blood, we begin moments after last week's episode, uh, blood dripping off the blade. I, I always thought when I saw this scene that that was just like a lot of blood to be dripping off for a beheading, but... I've never been to a beheading, so... Oh, you I, must. I, I have no you idea. simply must. <laughs> I have no idea how accurate it is. But felt to me like it was a clean death, and uh, therefore maybe there wouldn't be that much blood. But whatever, maybe the blade, uh, you know, he left the blade under Ned's uh, neck and underbody, and it just got a ton of blood all over it. But it was, it was a lot of blood. Uh, very thick, flowing blood. Uh, to emphasize for you that there is there is no mistake that Ned is dead. Viscous, um, I think, is is very good. Uh, and then we see, I mean, we see Ned's beheaded body. As yeah, well. that too. Uh, Santa passes out, mm-hmm. uh, which who wouldn't? And uh, yeah, then Yorin takes Arya away, and uh, they're they're often you know like we talked last week about how that chapter ended with. Uh, him, gra- Yorin grabbing Arya's hair, and this week we find out that he's cutting her hair, and he's gonna make her look like a boy, so that people won't even suspect that she's Arya Stark. Uh, anything you want to comment on in this opening scene? Well, it's funny we talked last week about that that cliffhanger, you know, in the context of cliffhangers in the book. And uh, in the reading that we did this week, it, you'll notice there's no Arya chapter at all. That stuff with like Hot Pie and Gendry, I think, uh, that we'll get to later in the episode is in the next book. So that's actually a cliffhanger for Arya for the entire book. What's going to happen to Arya? There's a blade coming at her face. That's the last thing we hear, mm. right? So imagine having to wait until the next book comes out to find out. Well, Pat Sponigal, a uh, great... Uh, reader of the book and uh, and listener to the sh- the podcast wrote in at the Facebook page because uh, I, I, apparently I made a remark last week about how uh, the show doesn't really do people getting saved at the last moment very much right um, that the show and the book will often instead subvert your expectations in that regard and Pat wrote in Dave's comment on Ned not being saved at the last minute and how the show doesn't do those isn't quite right. Ned wasn't saved, but the show still provides moments of peril with rescues at the last moment. For instance, the Hound saves Sansa from rioters. Podrick saves Tyrion from Sir Mandon Moore. Those are two big cavalry moments. The combined Lannister-Tyrell cavalry breaking the siege on King's Landing and Stannis' army routing the Free Folk. Grey Worm is saved by Sir Barristan's heroism. Drogon gets Danny out with a fire with Dragonfire. And Sir Jaime leaps into a pit to save Brienne, armed only with his je ne sais quoi and his sexy charisma. So let's not dismiss those saves. Oh, and also that time that Theon was about to suffer some serious abuse by Bolton soldiers, but he was saved by the nice kid with the bow. <laughs> Uh, so, fair point. 
Those are uh, those are pretty good saves. Uh, and Pat once again proves <laughs> that I have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, so yeah, there were there were a bunch of saves. I, I will say, okay, that while Pat is absolutely right, we can agree that the show occasionally, if not often, subverts our expectations around who's the hero, who's the villain, and who's going to live and who's going to die. Oh yeah, like Oberyn. You know, you you think that maybe that Oberyn's going to win that fight against the mountain, and then he doesn't. You think that Rob and Cat are going to not die horribly, for <laughs> and they do. Right. You know, yes. so I would say, yeah. Uh, you okay. think? You think? Surely, surely that little Shireen kid is not going to get burned at the stake. <laughs> uh, was that that is a show invention? Is that correct? Yeah, so far it might be that Shireen gets killed in the future books we're not sure <laughs> gotcha all right uh so king's landing and then not only do you get the scene of aria and yorin at the beginning but you also see kind of where they're headed and uh, meet hot pie and gendry later on this episode right yes um and she walks by the cart where jack and hagar is but they hadn't cast jack and hagar, mm. hagar yet so it's just some guy under a really big hood a really big hood i was like <laughs> wow can, can that guy see anything <laughs> uh so very good thank you for pointing that out joanna yeah. uh all right so a- anything you want to say about that uh just that yorin ends with winter is coming and then off they go to the wall it's a pretty pretty good exit for yorin this season so yeah. he's pretty awesome it made me remember a time when gendry was still a character in the show. I miss you, um, Gendry. Yeah. Uh, last we heard, he was uh, paddling off into the distance on a boat, correct? Yes. Yeah. Still rowing, yes. Still rowing. Um, I'll also, a uh, shout-out appreciation for Maisie Williams' terrible wig in this episode uh, with that awful haircut that Yorin gave her. So, yeah. Man, you just, you just cannot let go of the wigs, Jenna Well, it's intentionally terrible. How would her you feel... supposed to look bad. How would you feel if she said that was her real hair, Joanna? How would you feel? Then you'd feel pretty bad, wouldn't you? I would know that it's not. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Uh, So what else happens in this scene? We get a scene in uh, Winterfell with Bran uh, having a dream, and he goes down to the crypt with Asha, uh, and uh, Rickon's wolf attacks them. uh, And he, he, like, Rickon had a dream about Ned, and it was a bad one. And that's when Maester Lewin tells Bran, hey... Your father's dead. Uh, this scene seemed like it was meant to, if not do some exposition, then remind us of exposition that already happened around who uh, Liana was, for instance. Uh, what did you get out of this scene? Yeah, I mean, it's in the books. Um, this reminder of who's in the Winterfell Crips, this sort of instance of Rickon and Bran having the same dream of Ned being down in the crypt, of the adults telling them... Uh, no, it's fine. Your dad's fine. And then finding out that he's not. Bran, we know, has visions. It's really interesting. Someone pointed out to me recently that, that Rickon is often right about things. Like in this, in the beginning of the season, you know, when, <laughs> when Bran's like, mom and dad are coming back. And Rickon's like, nope, they're never coming back. And he was right. Uh, you know, and Rickon, Rickon has the same prophetic dream that Bran had about Ned being down the crypt. So we haven't really explored anything about Rickon in the show at all, really. Um, but what if he also has some sort of gift? I mm. don't know. We'll find out. A lot of uh, untapped power there, for sure. Speaking, <laughs> speaking of people who may or may not have gifts, 
One of the issues brought up in last week's podcast was whether or not Jon Snow is a Targaryen, because if he was a Targaryen, he wouldn't have been burned by the lantern uh, from the previous week's episode, right? But then people on the Facebook page at facebook.com slash cast of kings rightfully pointed out, well, if Viserys is a Targaryen, you know, why was he burned by this uh, melting gold all over his face? Uh, did, did you ever have a way of squaring that in your head? Um, well, yeah. Well, I've talked about this in the podcast before, that I don't think it's clear what the rules are right. in terms of fire and Targaryens. That Daenerys apparently survived the fire, like, at the end of this episode, not beca- just because she's a Targaryen, but because, um, uh, you know, she did some blood magic, basically a life for a life or, or that sort of stuff. Um I, I just don't know what the rules are, to be yeah. perfectly honest with you. And, and d- the way Daenerys squares it is she thinks Viserys is not, not a worthy, dragon. not a yeah. dragon, but it's not because he's not a blood Targaryen, right. because he doesn't have the right spirit to be a dragon. Yeah. And she does, because she likes her baths very hot. Um, and that's the only reason. Yep. I mean, I don't, I don't know, man. I don't know. It's all, it's all kind of a mystery to me. And in my opinion, George R. R. Martin, I mean... I know you guys are all going to write in with your opinions, and that's great. And I can't wait to read them. But in my opinion, George R. R. Martin has not explained this satisfactorily. But it's nitpicky. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. So this episode, we see all the Starks getting the news of Ned's death and how they deal with it in different ways. At the Stark camp, uh, Catelyn and Rob gets the news. Catelyn kind of leaves the camp and kind of uh, – how would you describe that motion that she does? I guess like swoons against the tree, right? Just like nausea sweeps over you, like dizziness. Your whole life is becoming unmoored. Uh, I think she does a great job, and she's still kind of overwhelmed by emotion until she sees Rob himself just hacking away at a tree uh, in anger, and uh, it's a very touching moment that's punctuated also by uh, their mutual desire to quote unquote kill them all. Uh, which was one of the most memorable moments from the first season for me, just uh, the way the camera kind of uh, swoops around them while they're embracing and vowing to get their sisters back, uh, Rob's sisters back, and then vowing to kill all the Lannisters. And man, was I right there with them the first time I saw this episode. And they never do. Mm -mm, Mm-mm, mm-mm. So yeah, any- it's, it's it's rough watching that scene going, yeah, we're going to kill them. We're going to kill them all. We're going to get our revenge. And as you say about subverting expectations, the expectation is, oh, yeah, I've seen this movie. This is Gladiator. This is whatever. They killed their family. Now they're going to get their revenge and triumph in a way, you know, in right. some way. But n- no. Rob. You've ruined your sword. Kill them all. Every one of them. I'm gonna kill them all. They have your sisters. We have to get the girls back. And then we will kill them all. What's really uh, cool about this episode is 
the the one thing I was struck with rewatching the episode is how much of the stuff that happens in this episode becomes ironic later on, right? That knowing what happens in this episode, knowing what happens later on, wow, a lot of the stuff that happens in this episode is uh, is ironic. The correct word, I guess, uh, it just makes later developments seem especially unexpected. Uh, and I'll, I'll go into that a little bit. But one of them is this, you know, that they're going to kill them all. And like you said, it's kind of invoking these common tropes from uh, these sword and sandal movies or medieval films. And uh, and we already know that it's, it's not going to work out for them. It's, it's not even not going to work out for them. It's going to be the opposite of working out for them. You know, it's the Lannisters who are going to triumph here. Uh, so for now, for now, there is a scene in uh, the Stark camp. Uh, Actually, all this in the book takes place at uh, Lord Hoster's? Lord Hoster Tully. Lord Lord Hoster Tully's... uh, River Run. River Run, right. Uh, And so there's this great hall that they meet in, and we meet Edmure here, which doesn't happen in the show until later on. So there's a bunch of stuff going on here. And also, um, Lord Hoster Tully himself, right? Like, Catelyn's father, who's just, like, excised completely from the show. Right. Uh, are any of these characters, just like curious, are any of these characters, uh, those who you felt like, oh man, I really wish they'd included that character in the show? I think uh, Brendan Blackfish Tully is a character that a lot of book readers are sad. Uh, like, he's, he's pretty good in the show. You know, he shows up, uh, he's pretty good, but he's kind of great in the book, and, and they haven't quite nailed it. Gotcha. But he's not dead, so they still have time. At least he's not – at least he doesn't get sna- sand snakes treatment, right? <laughs> so um, true. Uh, so so true. they are meeting in the Stark camp and they're kind of talking about what they should do. You know, should we unite behind Renly or Stannis? Uh, and then I think – is it Car Stark who pledges fealty to Rob? Like first? Uh, Great John Umber, I believe. Great John Umber. Is, is, and is he or is he not the guy who's later beheaded? No, that's Karstark. Uh, that's Karstark. Okay. All right. Uh, well, anyway, uh, Great John Umber. And then actually in the book, Karstark as well pledges fealty, uh, followed by Theon, which is not in the book. But this is another thing where uh, you, that like because they put that in there, it makes yeah. Theon's eventual betrayal all the more biting, right? Yeah. Um, but that is an amazing scene. In the show, and you really get kind of riled up. It, it is very, genuinely moving that all these people are willing to unite behind this guy who looks like he's in his early twenties. Right, show, right, uh, right. These grizzled men and their right. beards are kneeling down to him and shouting, "King in the north, King in the north." It's very moving. Yeah, it is a great, and it's a great line too. The yes. King in the north. Um, uh, and the show has a, a great skill, and you know George R. R. Martin has great skill for like writing these incredibly memorable lines. Uh, so, right, because King of the North just doesn't have the same ring to it as King in the North. Yes, for, some, for whatever reason, you know, for some, whatever reason, he knows exactly how to arrange the syllables. The proper course is clear. Pledge fealty to King Renly and move south to join our forces with his. Renly is not the king. You cannot mean to hold to Joffrey, my lord. He put your father to death. And doesn't make Renly king. He's Robert's youngest brother. A brand can't be Lord of Winterfell before me. Renly can't be king before Stannis. Do you mean to declare us for Stannis? Renly is not right. 
My lords! My lords! Here is what I say to these two kings. <laughs> Lenly Baratheon is nothing to me. Nor Stannis, neither. Why should they rule over me and mine from some flowery seat in the south? What do they know of the war? Or the wolf's wood? Even their gods are wrong. <laughs> Why shouldn't we rule ourselves again? It was the dragons we bowed to. And now the dragons are dead. There sits the only king I mean to bend my knee to. The king of the north! Catelyn visits Jamie, who, which, by the way, uh, even at this early stage, I could already sense that the security around Jamie was not quite as high as it should have been. <laughs> and you, you knew they were going to pay. He's not even in a cage at this point. He's, he's not even in a cage. To a you know, Catelyn says, leave us. And the guy's just like, okay. You know, <laughs> and he just leaves her. And that is probably what ends up happening later on. And it would be a really strategic error for them to leave her uh, at least or, later but, he's in a cage i, I even yeah. in a cage john this is yeah. this is like you gotta like suicide watch is not well yeah you gotta put him on suicide watch and or mischief watch you, know? <laughs> you don't want him killing his own family members for instance yeah i was about to say mischief for jamie lannister is bludgeoning his own cousin yeah. to death yeah um yeah and this isn't in the book but it's a really good scene i think Great exchange here uh, between Catelyn and Jamie, and it, it plays out exactly as I would think that that conversation plays out. Because at this point, Catelyn still doesn't know why Bran was pushed out the tree, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, she, tower, yeah, uh, or the tower, yeah, like that. He saw them having sex, and you know he's having sex with his sister. Maybe she suspects that. Like I, I forget. Like does she know that Joffrey is not the true heir at this point? I don't think so, right? No. Yeah. So. Uh, and then, what is Jamie going to say? Like, he's, he's obviously not going to tell her the truth. Do you? Th- it feels to me like maybe he's a little bit embarrassed. I don't know. That's my my I, projection I, I, onto his uh, performance here. I feel like the way Nicola Costa Waldau was playing it, he almost he almost told her the truth. Like he thought about it. Right. It looked like he thought about telling her the truth, or even something like he saw something he shouldn't have seen. Uh, you know, I was expecting those right. words out of his mouth, but he just didn't say anything. Um, I really like the line. I think she says something like men like you. And he said, there are no men like me. There's only me, which is a great line. Right. Um, and then they talk about justice, and the nature of justice. And it's, um, it's all really fascinating and completely show invented. Yeah. And I think it sets up well, the developments in the show that happened later on, you know, with Brienne and Catelyn breaking Jamie out basically. Uh, I, I think this makes that development slightly more understandable. Yeah. Uh, or at least, at the very least, is a nice prelude to that. Um, a so. lot of this episode is building for next season, right? Yeah. Uh, basically setting the stage for the War of the Five Kings. Uh, setting up Stanless, Stannis and Renly as credible threats. Rob as, as a king, that's a threat. Um yeah, setting it all up. So, so there is a, a moment in the book that's not in the show at all that I actually thought was kind of nice, which is when uh, Kat 
meets up with uh, all of her family members and they're talking about strategically what's going on, she has a moment of deep regret over having seized Tyrion. Uh, and that basically never happens in the show, right? Like, I don't think she ever has any regret over her fairly silly actions this season. She also counsels peace. She's like, let's make peace, trade our, trade our Lannisters for Starks, and go home. Right, because she doesn't want to see her children all die in, in war. Right, which is very different from, we'll kill them all, mm. right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, tomato, tomato. <laughs> So yeah, Catelyn of the book is like trying to be like, let's make peace with Joffrey, get my daughters back. I want to go back to Winterfell. Rob can be Lord of Winterfell. The end. And then all the Lords of the North are like, nope, not good enough. No, thank you. So she makes much smarter choices in the book for sure. I think, mm-hmm. or at least is much smarter. And you know what else is much smarter, Joanna, than Stacking. normal domain registrars? <laughs> Hover dot com. Oh. Which is an awesome domain registrar. If let's say you guys listen to this podcast, you have some idea, you want to start a business, you want to uh, start a blog, you want to start a podcast. Uh, well, hover.com/fire is a great way to get that idea off the ground uh, because it is a great way to get a domain name quickly and cheaply and with a ton of features that you have to pay for on other services. Uh, Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domain. In less than five minutes, you can get the domain name you want and get it up and running. Uh, Hover.com is also super clean and simple, so you don't have to mess around with a complicated interface. Jonah Robinson, have you ever registered a domain name at a place that's not Hover.com? I sure have, Dave Chen. It's probably a huge pain in the ass. It really is. (laughs) Actually, uh, yeah, yes. you have to click through like 15 screens and go through all this rigmarole just to get a domain name you want. And they make it try, they make it super complicated by selling you stuff that you don't want. Uh, they make you pay the upgrade for features that should come for free. Hover.com doesn't believe in any heavy handed upselling. Uh, they include everything you need with your domain, including a free valet transfer service so you can skip the hassle of moving your domains over to Hover from where they're currently registered. So let's say you do have your na- domains registered at blank, which I can't name because why would I during an ad for Hover.com? Uh, they have a free domain uh, valet transfer service. So you can just get all your stuff on the Hover, manage it all from there, and it's a great service. Uh, so go to hover.com slash fire and get 10% off your first purchase. Uh, and we'd really appreciate if you guys uh, went there and bought a domain because Hover is a huge backer of A Cast of Kings. If you've enjoyed anything uh, that we've done this season, we're not asking you to donate. We're not asking you to kickstart us. Just go to hover.com slash fire and uh, buy a domain name. Who knows? It could become uh, a multi-million dollar idea for you. Uh, so thanks a lot for Hover to sponsoring us this season. Thanks also to all of our other sponsors as well. It's been quite a fun ride. We really appreciate them sticking with us uh, for this season one rewatch and book club. Let's move on, John Robinson, uh, to what else has been going on this season, uh, or this episode, I should say. King's Landing. We begin there uh, in the throne room, uh, there is this uh, guy singing a song about Robert Baratheon's death, right? Right, right. Uh, and I was actually surprised that this song wasn't in the book. It's the, the lyrics to the song are, 
let's let's be honest quite offensive uh having phenomenal they're very (laughs) very bad and uh so there's there's this question of like why is he even singing this song uh because the way it's set up it almost seems like he's kind of entertaining joffrey uh, but in fact, he's been brought in front of Joffrey at Joffrey's request, right? Joffrey is right. demanding someone sang this offensive song. I think the closing line is something like, uh, the lion took his, the, referring to Robert, the lion took his balls off, the boar did all the rest. I think that's the closing yep. lines. You lion being Cersei Lannister. Right. Because uh, that's her house sigil, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so very, very, it's like very insulting to both. Robert and Cersei. Uh, and, you know, I was curious, like, what is the backstory? Why is this guy singing this song here? In, it, it, they hint at it in the show, and in the book they make it very explicit uh, that, yeah, Joffrey had heard about it and basically brought the guy here and forced him to sing the song, even though the guy promised he wouldn't sing the song. Uh, if, I were the, you know, if I were the guy, I probably would have just changed the lyrics like on the fly, Eminem style, you know what I mean? Like, don't mm-hmm. don't even go near where people thought it was. <laughs> what did you think of the song? I thought it was great. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty pretty rough. I mean, yeah. it's no, but it's great. I mean, Cersei murdered Robert basically, so I, I'm not like too precious about. I didn't know that like that was such a common con- perception that it had filtered down to the common folk, and then people are actually writing songs about it. Right. Well, I mean, it's more like, isn't he just talking about how Cersei is a man eater and a controlling wife and all this sort of stuff? And I don't know that it's explicitly about her murdering Robert. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, great. Even even that, like, I'm just surprised that people are aware of the marital dynamics, you know? Um, Maybe that's why, maybe that's why it wasn't in the book, because there's no plausible way to make that happen, but. Uh, in any case, great line. My favorite part of this whole scene, Joanna, aside from the fact that they order this guy's tongue get cut off and they, and that whole thing is shot very, uh, artistically with Sansa and the hound in the foreground and then, you know, them out of focus in the background. So you don't get to see how brutal and bloody it is truly, but you hear it, hear the screaming. you hear it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. My favorite part watching this, this episode and seeing the scene once more was that when Joffrey uh, sentences this guy to get his tongue ripped out, I think it's Marin Trant that does it, right? Uh, I think it's Ilan Payne. Ilan Payne, sorry. Sorry. My bad. Uh, is it Marin Trant that hits? Yeah. yeah. Marin Trant slaps uh, Sansa later on. Yes. Uh, Ilan Payne carries it out, and he, he already has his own tongue cut out. And so Joffrey says, what better person to carry out the sentence? And I love that Ilan Payne has tongue tongs on his personality, as though this is a sentence that apparently gets carried out repeatedly <laughs> during the course of a day. Uh, like, if you see him, he just whips out these tongs, like he's ready to go. He has a <laughs> dagger and the tongs just rearing to go. Uh, so, Joffrey is a, a pretty brutal ruler. Anyway. Did you interpret Cersei's look the same way I did, where she's like, I'm not sure he's doing a very good job being a ruler? <laughs> Uh, I made a big mistake. I think think that's definitely part of it. But at the same time, I don't think she's like super displeased that this guy got his tongue cut off. You know, because that 
she's not upset about the guy. She's just like Joffrey's just being such a little. He's just not being kingly at all. Right. He's being a smarmy little tool bag, and she's like, "Oh dear, <laughs> this is our king. Oh no." Right. That's sort of my sense of what's going on in Lita Hitty's face, but yeah, I mean, it's certainly what's going on in in the books. I don't know that I got enough in the show to make that conclusion. Uh, certainly, I think the events of last week's episode would have given you enough to make that conclusion. But uh, yeah, I, I think that dynamic is a little bit missing, and we'll talk a little bit about that more later on. So they bring Sansa out to look at um, Ned's head. And if you didn't hate Joffrey enough, this is the scene, I think, that really cemented him as a villain character. A villain. Like, it's one thing if he actually thought he was doing the right thing. You know, by beheading. Like, I, let me just, let me put this out there, okay? I could actually see someone coming to the conclusion that killing Ned was actually uh, th- that there's some value in doing that, like because it sets up like uh, that. You know, we will not tolerate these kinds of crimes, right? Like, tactically, it's a horrible move, but maybe there's some kind of animating principle behind it. But I think this is the scene that just like there's just no justification for this level of cruelty. Uh, maybe you're already there, Joanna. But for me, this is what tipped me over the edge. Oh, okay. So, you're like, nuts head. All right. Yeah, that's, that was okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and do you recall the whole George W. Bush head uh, controversy back in season one of Game of Thrones? The George Bush head? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that originally that- when the show was broadcast – uh, there was a head fashioned after George W. Bush. And I, I think, I am not certain, but I think you can see part of it maybe still in this. You this, can uh, see the profile. Right. Um, and so Weiss and Benning have said in the commentary track, um, it's not a choice. It's not a political statement. It's just we had to use what heads we had lying around. Um, <laughs> so there's lost- a shot when they look up at Septa yeah. Mordain's head mm-hmm. uh, that you see a George W. Bush head, but he has like a lot of hair. It doesn't even look like him, you know, but it did remind me of that controversy. Uh, yeah. The HBO was- had to issue a statement saying we were, we were deeply dismayed to see this and find it unacceptable, disrespectful, and in very bad taste. We made this clear to the executive producers of the series who apologized immediately for this inadvertent, careless mistake. We are so sorry this happened and we'll have it removed from any future DVD production. Yeah. Uh, man, we were so we were so young back then, Joanna. <laughs> we were so innocent back then. Uh, and it then, does. It feels like weirdly pearl clutching. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that this <laughs> George W. Bushhead took place during a time when <laughs> you know barely being able to make out a profile of George W. Bush with a ton of hair uh, on this television show was one of the biggest problems we had in popular culture and politics at the time. <laughs> so right. we are now in a different world. We're through the looking glass now, Joanna. Sure are. Uh, so anyway, uh, a lot of great moments during this scene. Uh, obviously very unpleasant to see Sansa uh, subjected to this. I think my favorite line from the episode is when she says, I promise I won't do any treason. Treasons. Which, she says treasons, like plural, and it's <laughs> from me, the book too. Let me go home. You know, I won't do any treasons. I won't do any treasons. <laughs> it is a great line. But you uh, see her learning and adapting to the situation right quick. You know, when she mm-hmm. says, uh, like, 
how how long like do you want me to keep looking you know as long as it pleases me and she you know she starts like learning the things to say to not get beat basically yeah and the hound is there sort of trying to help her um you know in his way and uh there's that part where she, she is contemplating him. pushing him off yeah and the hound stops her not really necessarily to protect joffrey i think but to because he knows that she would be immediately killed so right either if she went down with him or because she killed him right Marin trant immediately would murder her so. now here's the thing is like would the sin would things have turned out better for the kingdom if she had killed him at this point you know i don't know like it would have thrown the whole realm into chaos probably right who would have been on the throne Tommen, i guess yeah uh, Tommen would have taken over even earlier. Which... Tommen would have been like a toddler king. Yeah. Um, yeah, but then it would have been easier, I think, for right. Tyrion to control things. What I'm trying to say is Sansa mm-hmm. not doing this costs thousands of people their lives. <laughs> this, is like, this is like, would you go back in time and kill baby Hitler? Yes. Yes. Would you yes. go back in time and kill teenage Joffrey? Oh, I yes. Think, I think the answer is yes, right? Yes. We, we, oh, yes. we agree. That uh, Sansa made a, a grave mistake. This reminds me of uh, this sketch that College Humor did about like, man, wouldn't it be great to go back to the 90s and people miss like pogs and 90s television shows and all this stuff. And then when, once they go back, the person who like takes him back with him to, to time travel says, you know, like once we're done enjoying all this 90s stuff, you know what you have to do, right? You have to prevent 9-11 because you're the only person that knows about it. <laughs> <laughs> And how difficult that would be without actually endangering yourself. Um, so, yeah, sometimes you have a chance. This this felt like a, a consequential moment in the history of Westeros that Sansa did not seize the opportunity for. So, that is unfortunate. Can't say I blame her, though. Anything else we want to say about this scene? Great job by Sophie Turner. Yeah. And uh, Jack Leeson as ever. Yeah, he's Perfect so little monster. Yep, agreed. All right, what else happens? Uh, we have uh, well, one other scene in King's Landing happens, which is we get a scene of Lancel and Cersei together. So uh, not only do we find out that Cersei is having sex with Lancel, but also because they're uh, sort of having this liaison, uh, that possibly Lancel was involved with the death of Robert as well, right? Mm-hmm. This is kind of our, one of our big hints that that was right. happening. And this would be a very consequential scene because they would pay this off four seasons later in the most recent season, right? So. Did you know it was Lance? I forgot. I was like, <laughs> who is that naked person behind that gauzy veil? <laughs> I was like, is that Even after the entire last season, like the season five of the show that we watched together, Joanna? Well, I, for, I didn't realize we were in Cersei's chamber. I was like, where are we? Oh, we're not yeah. the Raw scene yet. Who is naked? And then Lancel has such like a slim little figure and long, beautiful hair. And I was like, is that a lady? He was hunched over. I couldn't right. tell. And then I was like, and then I saw Cersei. I was like, oh, it's Lancel. That's right. Fair enough. Uh, speaking of sex position uh, and naked people going on like in the background <laughs> while there's exposition, uh, there's a scene with Ma- Maester Pycelle and uh, Roz. My right? fave, Roz, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, I mean, here's an example where the nudity is just crucial to what's going on in this scene, right? I mean, I oh, think we, we can say that without the nudity, like, the scene just would not have worked. 
Not at all. No. I, I actually might be right in that statement, but not in the way <laughs> not in the way that we thought about just now. Uh, yeah. So, are you talking about Pycelle's nudity, or like the fact that we can see right through his shift? <laughs> his shift is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I was not talking about Pycelle's nudity, in fact. But uh, yeah. So, like years later, I'm still kind of puzzling over what the purpose of the scene was. I think it shows us that. Pycelle is an incredibly deceptive character because, you know, you see that he's flexible and then you see him, like, purposely, like, hunch over and walk slowly before he leaves the room. Right. Uh, so he, this is all an act. It reminds me of that scene in uh, The Prestige. I think I might have brought this up years ago when we first talked about this scene. Uh, but there's a scene in The Prestige where they, they go to see an old magician. And uh, th- this magician can make, like, a goldfish bowl appear out of nowhere and uh, the two magicians are talking to each other, and they say, like, this part where he's, like, slowly walking to his carriage, like, this is the act, Do you know? Not the bringing the goldfish bowl up. It's this part where the rest of the time he pretends to be this incredibly old person, uh, and people underestimate him because he's weak. Hmm. Any thoughts on this scene and why it was included? I think because we get that various and little finger scene later and i don't know you know we've talked before about these two-hander scenes that were show inventions i don't know if if that's why the Roz and picelle scene is there why the little finger and vera scene is there maybe even why the jamie and catlin scenes are there um that they but, just wanted to fill space i guess I, well well no that's one option but the other thing is to say that when you put picelle and Roz back to back with various and little finger it's interesting to see the various, I mean, Littlefinger and and Varys, it's a much more explicit scene. This is this is, I think, mm, well, I was going to say the least subtle of their interactions, but then there's the whole like chaos is in a pit, it's a ladder scene, which is uh, even more heavy heavy handed. But they're just talking so explicitly about I make my way this way, and you make your way this way, and this is how we survive at court, and how we scheme, and how we stay alive. And Pycelle's scene is sort of that too. This is how Pycelle has survived through so many kings right by is, by coming off as helpless and and very subservient yeah yeah i mean picel is still on the small council right right you know of all of them like little you know various and little finger basically fled little finger to sort of amass more power but they're gone and picel is still trucking along yeah he had he had a low point for a while but he's back you know, so I would also argue that the scene is just like reiterating exposition that we've already gone through in the show, but that nonetheless is confusing. I mean, if you like watch King, an ep- King Aries, yeah, and- King Aries. I mean, if you watch an episode of Twenty Four, if you if you ever watch any Twenty Four, um, and I just give this as an example, every episode of Twenty Four, or even a show like Arrest Development, a massive quantity of time in those two shows as examples are spent reiterating things that have already happened in previous episodes. Uh, I think there's this rule, like on network television, you can only expect people to watch one out of every four episodes of, uh, of any given television show. This is like a few years ago, back before, you know, right, right. watching a DVR, Netflix. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is, I mean, not even that long ago, like five years ago, you, it would be difficult to expect people to follow a story like this, this closely. Uh, sure, this is in the post-Sopranos age, but still, it, it's not nearly a, like serialized television is not nearly as prevalent as it is today, which is incredibly prevalent. Um, 
but point being, I think it's just a way like this Liana scene that they had earlier with Bran and this scene with Pycelle is just like, hey, this show has uh, plot details that are difficult to grasp. Uh, here is us reiterating them in various ways and from different perspectives. So yeah, you can I kind agree. Of understand it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but true, it also speaks a lot to Maester Pycelle's character. I agree with you as well. So, all right. Uh, um, but we definitely did not see, need to see Roz naked. Uh, for yeah, for okay. that to land, right? So, uh, yeah, and then and then not only that, but like the whole point of her being there, you know, she says, "What were you trying to say?" You, and he forgets what he was trying to tell her. The thing you must understand about kings, right? She just leaves. But I'm not sure he forgets. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, but I guess my point being, you know, it would be one thing to have her there naked if she actually had a purpose for being there and like some information on that fr- like there was some kind of character development transaction going on you know what i'm saying um but as it is it seems like she was just there to be naked yep yeah and so that he you know she's part of the furniture for him to talk to yes mm-hmm. uh so anyway let's let's move <laughs> on uh we go to the lannister camp where tywin is very upset that uh, the Starks have his son. Mm-hmm. And Tywin essentially, so Tyrion s- s- says like, hey, you're not going to be able to get peace even though we're basically losing this war right now. You're not going to get peace because Joffrey cut off Ned's head. So we're, we're all screwed. Uh, and Tywin is like very impressed by this tactical observation and sends him back to King's Landing as Hand of the King. Yes. Uh, and there is this line that he says about like, why are you, what do you want me to do it? And he says, you're my son. Yeah. Uh, and in the book, this is imbued with even more, uh, significance because Tyrion interprets that as Tywin has has basically written off Jamie's existence. Like he thinks Jamie is going to die, which Tyrion has not gotten to that point yet. Not even close. Right. Uh, so and Tyrion loves Jamie. He's very loyal to Jamie. So the fact that his father, he feels like his father has written Jamie off by acknowledging Tyrion as his son. Um, that that Tywin has written Jamie off, and that makes yeah, it makes Tyrion outraged. You were right about Eddard Stark. If he were alive, we could have used him to broker a peace with Winterfell and River Runner. Which would have given us more time to deal with Robert's brothers. But now, madness. Madness and stupidity. I always thought you were a stunted fool. Perhaps I was wrong. Half wrong? I'm new to strategy, but unless we want to be surrounded by three armies, it appears we can't stay here. No one will stay here. Sir Gregor will head out with 500 riders and set a riverland on fire from God's eye to the Red Fork. The rest of us will regroup at Harrenhal. You will go to King's Landing. And do what? Rule. You will serve as Hand of the King in my stead. You'll bring that boy king to heel and his mother too, if needs be. And if he gets so much as a whiff of treason from any of the rest, Baelish, Varys, Pycelle... Head spikes walls. Why not my uncle? Why not anyone? Why me? 
You're my son. Uh, and then Tywin also demands that he not take Shay with him to court. Right. And then Tyrion says, hey, I'm taking Shay with me to court. Uh, and uh, this, again, is a scene that, like, later on, it's going to become especially ironic uh, because when Tywin says, you're my son, I'm reemphasizing my bond with you. Of course, we know how Tywin dies. And then he says, you're not taking that person to court with you. And Tywin's the one that ends up betting Shay. Yeah. Um, I was thinking, you know, you did a sort of what if, what if uh, Sansa had pushed Joffrey off that bridge? I was watching this going, what if Tyrion just didn't take Shay with him? It, in the books, it, because he's so mad at Tywin, it's like, Tywin's like, you're my son. So Tyrion's pissed because he feels like his father's written off Jamie. And then he says, you're not taking that whore to court with you. And so then Tyrion just goes back and he goes, cool, I'm going to take her. Fuck you, dad. In in the show, it's more like Shay gets all affronted and then Tyrion decides to take her. So, I mean, it seems stupid because he just met her. So, like, why should he care that she's upset that she right. doesn't get to go to court? And so, yeah, I was watching that going, what if Tyrion just didn't take Shay to court with him? That would have been fine, you know? Well, what would have? Do you think then Tyrion would have been less pissed that Tywin was sleeping with her, and then therefore Ty- Tyrion might not have killed Tywin? Well, she wouldn't even have been there. But it wasn't just that. I mean, no, I think Tyrion would have killed Tywin anyway. But maybe, but she would have been there to testify against him in court. You know, right? That's part of it. I don't know. There's, a, I mean, the whole Shay. Shay was a big weakness for Tyrion, and it's good for someone as smart as Tyrion to have such. Such a weakness. That's that's good for storytelling. Dramatic. Yeah, yeah, for storytelling. But uh, yeah, I was like, uh, in the show version, watching Tyrion make that decision because it's not clear that he's mad at at Tywin. It seems like he's kind of pleased that Tywin is giving him some respect and credit. Uh, So you know, he does he does call his father the c word. So obviously, like he still thinks his father's the worst, but um, I don't know. There's less less of a direct line between that decision and what Tywin says about Jamie or the way that Tyrion interprets it. Uh, the, Tywin in the book also goes off on this massive rant about all the stupid things that Joffrey's been doing. Uh, you know, like he dismissing Barristan, dismissing Barristan, making Janice Slint a lord. Uh, all this- he has such a sick burn in the book about Janice Lint because Janice Lint's father was a butcher. Yes. So he's like, he picked a bloody spear as his sigil because he's been made a lord, so he gets to pick his own sigil. Picked a bloody spear. It should have been a bloody cleaver because right. he's a butcher. I was like, that's a Tywin zing. All right. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, that was a, a Tywin zing. But I also like, I don't know. I mean, this is what is part of the economy of the show is that you see Joffrey uh, cut this guy's tongue out and that's all you really need to understand that Joffrey is a horrible king, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, but just, I think it's important to know that even his grandfather thinks that he's worse, which you get in this scene in the show because he says, what does he say? Madness and stupidity. Right. That's how he describes Joffrey's action. He doesn't need to do a laundry list. He can just say madness and stupidity. But I liked the part about Barristan uh, that's in the book because it's nice that Tywin's like, I mean, you got to respect, Barristan's name carries 
weight and honor. And it's important to respect that even if, you know, I don't personally like him. Like, that's smarter. It's smarter to keep Barristan around. Um, right. Here's the, here's the line. Uh, dismissing Selmy, where was the sense in that? Yes, the man was old, but the name of Barristan the Bold still has meaning in the realm. He lent honor to any man he served. Can anyone say the same of the Hound? Hound burn. <laughs> you feed your dogs. Bo- I'm sorry. You feed your dog bones under the table. You do not seat him beside you on the high bench. Yeah. If Cersei cannot curb the boy, you must. So end quote there. But yeah, good. There's good stuff in the book. Basically, I think is. You're saying people what, should read the book? No, I'm not oh. going that far. <laughs> uh, but I'm saying the book is pretty great. I'm saying the book is pretty great. Uh, the show can still be enjoyed on its own terms. Sure thing. Uh, what else happens? So yeah, they take Shay. He takes Shay with him, which would be a pretty consequential decision that would probably end up leading to his undoing in some ways. And our first um, moment with Tyrion in season two is him walking into King's Landing, right? Walking into Joffrey's birthday. Mm, I, I don't recall actually. It's been it's been a while. I think it's him like strolling into Joffrey's name day celebration. That's right. Yeah, that, that sounds familiar. Yeah. Um, season two is the only season I haven't really gone back and revisited, but maybe I'll try after we do this uh, rewatch. Mm. So just a couple more uh, scenes to talk about. Firstly, let's talk about the wall. What's going on there? Uh, John basically, des- as you predicted last week, John, John basically <laughs> deserts his uh, post, tries to go join Rob. Sam and his friends ride out after him, and they bring him back. In the book, they make Sam even more useless. Sam doesn't even go after him. Yeah, uh, but at least he doesn't like get knocked off his horse by a tree branch like he does in the show uh i'm not sure which one is more useless to be honest with you but uh anyway they bring him back and uh and we find out from sir mormont that hey actually people run away all the time but they come back usually right Uh, yeah uh, but but, i mean let's not blow past that great moment in the woods yes with sam and pip and gren all standing around john the camera zooming around them as they say the words yeah and thinking about how the Gren, oath, the Great. oath, and yeah. then thinking about Gren saying that as he dies later, and Pip died the same night. Um, there's no Ed yet. We we don't get Ed till season two. But um, yeah, these are these are John's friends. Look how far he's come. Yeah, it's it's pretty great from them hating him earlier in the season. Too. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I'm pretty sure it's smooth sailing for John and the Night's Watch after this point. So, oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. this is it. They're like, come back with us. And he's like, cool. And they lived happily ever after. Agreed. Uncle Benjamin came back. It was awesome. Well, they, so Sir Mormon has, a, there's a great line uh, where he says, like, honor, you know, drove you from here. Honor brought you back. And John says, my friends brought me back. And Sir Mormon says, well, I didn't say it was your honor. Right. Uh, that's just, that's just an awesome line. And then Sir Mormon basically challenges him. He says, hey, we're going to go look for Benjamin. We're going to, uh, fight through, you know, probably very dangerous ground. Are you going to play at being uh, a person in the army or are you going to be a member of the Night's Watch or something like that? And very effective, and you get the sense that it makes a great impression on John, who rides off north with everyone. Um, any other thoughts on John and the Night's Watch scenes this episode? A couple things. I'm about to expose. How dumb I am sometimes. Are you ready? I'm ready. Uh, well, <laughs> so in the book, the penultimate chapter before Daenerys's final chapter uh, is Rob and King of the North. King of the North, King of the North, King of the North is what you get right before you go to Daenerys. 
here it's John, which I which I quite like. I think it's good. This epic riding into North of the Wall, and of course that's where season two takes John. Like like I said, this is all a big setup for season two. Um, but as they were riding north, I was like, "Is this it? Is this how season one ended?" Like I, I just kind of forgot about Daenerys's big, like one of the most famous moments in, oh, wow. in like all the TV. I was like, I was like, ah, John rides north. The end, right? And, <laughs> and it cuts to SS. I was like, oh no, no, no. Okay, no, no, no. All right, stupid brain. Anyway, yeah. Uh, well, I'm glad you were able to be surprised by it yet again. Uh, earlier in not, this episode, not uh, surprised, but just you know, I, I mean, it's interesting. It's a, of course they had to end with Daenerys stepping out of the flames. This is the the big ender of the book as well. Um, but it's interesting to see where they leave off with all these characters. You know that they decided to put John right before Daenerys. You know, I don't yeah. know. I just think it's interesting. Yeah, and 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 a lot of the characters are basically like in motion. Literally right. at the end of the season. Yeah. Um, so earlier on this episode, uh, we find out that Danny miscarried. Uh, the baby did not live. Uh, and uh, apparently the baby was all jacked up, according to the witch person, right? Yeah, but uh, she describes like a dragon. She says its skin was like scales and it had wings like a bat. That's a right. dragon, right? Right. It's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so then they go, she's, you know, she wants to know what she's bought with her baby's life. They go out to see Khal Drogo, who is just in a complete catatonic state and actually like way more catatonic on the show than he is in the book. Yeah. Cause in the book he can walk. Yeah. He can walk around it. Like he seems like kind of like a guy who's like had a lobotomy. Whereas yeah. in the show, I don't even think he blinks this entire episode. Like, <laughs> he, he's just like not even moving. He's vegetative. Yeah. No. When Jorah says he seems to like the warmth, that just made me so sad because, like, the, basically this guy has been reduced down to expressing preference for temperatures, and that's all he can do at this point. Um, mm-hmm. And they they have this great speech, uh, this great talk where where Danny starts to grow up real fast, Joanna. When uh, what's her name, Mary? Mary, says, Mary like, Missouri, yeah, yeah, like. Hey, uh, I'd already been raped several times before you saved me. They burned down my church. They killed all the people I loved. The baker. Come on. The baker, this kid she'd healed, like all this stuff. And uh, this awesome line that she has about, you know, like she, she says, like, I saved your life. And she says, well, look at your call. Like now you'll see what good is life when not- everything else like has been taken away, when nothing else remains. It's a great uh, speech. It's like almost word for word from the book. And the actress – and her beautiful accent does, like, an amazing job delivering it. It's really, really effective. You knew what I was buying, and you knew the price. It was wrong of them to burn my temple. It angered the great shepherd. This is not God's work. My child was innocent. Innocent? He would have been the stallion who mounts the world. Now he will burn no cities. Now his halasar will trample no nations into dust. I spoke for you. I saved you. Saved me. Three of those riders had already raped me before you saved me, girl. I saw my God's house burn. There where I had healed men and women, beyond counting. In the streets I saw piles of heads. The head of a baker who makes my bread. The head of a young boy 
that I'd cured a fever just three months past. So, tell me again exactly what it was that you saved. And it just, I think it kind of makes the world more morally complex for Danny. You know, mm-hmm. uh, she just thinks like, oh, I'm good. Other people are bad. Uh, you know, I'm going to save these women and therefore I'm good. But then it's like, well, actually, it's a little more complicated. Like if you've spent a lot of time screwing over this person, he's not going to be particularly receptive to you. And uh, it's not it's not a lesson I think Danny has even fully learned yet. Right. Yeah. Because that's what kind of bites her. Part of what bites her in this current season, this last, most recent season is, you know, she's like, no, I saved you. <laughs> Remember, right. I liberated you. You love me. And they're like, mm, do we? Yeah. So. What's great uh, about this scene and uh, this whole lesson is that uh, despite all that, you know what? She has learned and, and is still stuck with her vengeance. Um, <laughs> that is something that uh, she has not let go of. And so she decides to, to burn uh, not only Khal Drogo but also this woman alive. Mm-hmm. And I got to say, this section of the book was pretty transcendent. Uh, and I'm going to read some some passages from it. Um, but first, I, I did like this line from the book that's not in the show uh, that Jorah says to Danny uh, that like, there's, there's a bunch of book stuff here that I felt like was really great and helped explain a lot of stuff. I understand why they cut it. But uh, for instance... Jorah kind of tries to like paint this whole life for the two of them. Uh, Come east with me, Yiti, Karth, the Jade Sea, a shy by the shadow. We will see all the wonders yet unseen and drink what wines the gods see fit to service. Uh, please, Khaleesi, I know what you intend to do. Do not, do not. End quote. Uh, that I think is the closest like Sir Jorah ever comes to like truly expressing his love for her, right? I mean, just basically like, look, our life together can be wonderful and idyllic. Uh, he, no, he like tries to kiss her in the second book. He goes the second book. Maybe oh, like, I meant until this point, Joanna. Oh, until this point, yes. Yeah. It's it just like, oh, yeah, like this is a, a far more explicit than show Jorah in terms of, like it's very clearly he's, you know, pitching her on him at this point. Something else in the book that I also thought like the, the, the book did a much better job of was making clear uh, how many people had left the Kalasar, which is apparently like tens of thousands down to about a hundred, right? And also why the remaining people would have stayed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, like she made pro- they like made promises or she offered them stuff and they had loyalty. All that stuff was established in, in the book. You don't really need it because I don't even think really think about it. But I thought about it when I was watching this scene. Like what – if – the uh, Dothraki only serve the strong or follow the strong. Why are they still with this person if uh, Khal Drogo is dead? Right? That's all explained in the book as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but did you have any other thoughts leading up to the final moments? Well, I did really like – there's a whole long sequence, right, where she names three of the Dothraki as her co, as her like uh, – I think they're blood riders, um, by offering them these objects, as you say. and uh, um, And they're all like, no – you're a lady. We don't follow ladies. We like you, but we can't do this because it's not done. We'll escort you to the Dosh Kaleen where you can retire, but we can't follow you. Um, and then, of course, she has this great display of strength. And then they're 
intensely loyal to her. Right. So just to set up that dichotomy of we like you, but you're a lady. We're not going to follow you. And then, oh, my God, you're a goddess. This is incredible sort of thing. So. Yeah, totally. Uh, so that was very good. And then uh, she goes into the fire. And, you know, the book part of this was just ridiculously good, uh, I thought. Right. Uh, it, it was just so beautiful and so transcendent. I'm going to read a portion of it here. Uh, the heat beat at the air with great red wings, driving the Dothraki back, driving off even Mormont, but Danny stood her ground. She was the blood of the dragon, and the fire was in her. She had sensed the truth of it long ago, Danny thought, as she took a step closer to the conflagration. But the brazier had not been hot enough. The flames writhed before her, like the woman who had danced at her wedding, whirling and singing and spinning their yellow and orange and crimson veils. Fearsome to behold, yet lovely, so lovely, alive with heat. Danny opened her arms to them, her skin flushed and glowing. This is a wedding too, she thought, end quote. That's just awesome, right? Yes. I just, I just thought that's like amazing writing. Uh, there is a portion of the book where like her like milk starts flowing out of her breasts because uh, she just had a child recently. I did think that that was a good move to not include that in the show. <laughs> that would have been over the top, I think. Yeah, the but, dragons are like suckling at her breasts when yeah, she emerges, and that that's too. yeah, not that's, a great image. Yeah. Um, uh, breastfeeding is natural; it's great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it is. Oh, well, the the detail that I liked in the book was you hear the eggs cracking, but you don't right. know that that's what you're hearing if you're just reading it for the first time. She hears the first crack of a stone. You know, and you think maybe it's just the pyre collapsing, and then there's a second one, and then there's just a huge third one, which I'm guessing is Drogon coming out. Um, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and as she stands up, and in the show, the camera kind of spins around her, you see everyone just bowing down. And honestly, if if that happened to, in today's age, like that might be my reaction too. You know, if <laughs> this woman emerged naked from this fire. With these dragons these that dragons. haven't been seen in hundreds of years, <laughs> like I, I would probably feel like I was in the presence of something holy and beyond my comprehension as well. Um, so incredible scene, very convincingly played, and then with the dragon crying out to end the episode, cut the black. Uh, it's just made it made me really excited for the next season of this show. Any other thoughts we want to say about this specific scene before we reflect on the season, Joanna? Yes, I have a very important thing to say. This is my first encounter with someone on the internet having a disproportionate reaction to a Game of Thrones spoiler, uh, which is that it was like three days after the episode aired. I wrote a post on Pajiba.com, my former uh, home, about, I don't know, it was like the most ridiculous um, objects TV shows have used to cover a naked body. Um, <laughs> and obviously, like, you see Amelia Clark's breast, but you never see, like, her pubic region because she's holding a dragon in front of it. Correct. Um, which I just thought was hilarious. And the header image I used was her, like, sooty – I mean, it's a famous image now of her sooty and with the dragon on her shoulder. But someone hadn't seen the episode. It was, like, three days after it aired. Didn't know that there were dragons that were coming at all and just lost it at me and called me, like, the nastiest words I've, I've ever been called probably on the internet. Um, yeah, so that's when I learned. You got to be careful <laughs> with Game of Thrones spoilers. Well, Joan, I'm really sorry that happened to you. That's unacceptable in general. <laughs> 
Uh, but I will say that, uh, yeah, it's not that you got to be careful with Game of Thrones spoilers. you got to be careful with putting Game of Thrones spoilers in things that people cannot avoid. Right, right. right? The, header, the header image. The header image or the headline. And, you know, to be fair, you, are, you have gotten very good at that. Uh, I've seen all your Vanity Fair stuff. It is very respectful to book readers, probably because you do this podcast with me. And you know if you didn't do it, I would give you a ton of shit on the show. Um, but uh, I, I think you've done a great job. Uh, on the podcast and elsewhere. So thank you. Uh, anyway, any other thoughts on the scene? <laughs> no. Yeah, just wanted to share that. That I think of that every time I see that photo. So nice. Want to share it? Good. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and you're like, you're like, now this person would give me a difficult time, but back then it was a huge deal. <laughs> uh, there probably are still people who'd give a, give you a difficult time for that. But uh, anyway, so. I guess, but like now that like a gif of that. I mean, it's really only been a couple of years, right? But a gif of that image, like, like five, that image, five like, years. Yeah, but like not that long, really. And and the internet has changed so much. Like, um, I know you haven't watched it yet, so I won't spoil it all. But there was this huge thing that happened on Fargo this week, and the the minute after the episode aired, huge outlets like Entertainment Weekly, New York Times. Like, if, if it were the equivalent of this episode, they would have been like, holy shit, dragons, in their tweet, like, headline. Right. New York Times. <laughs> I was like, come on, guys. Like, be creative. Allude to it. And then people who have seen it will click. And then you can go, holy shit, dragons, or the equivalent within, you know? And, um, yeah, that drives me crazy. Drives me crazy. I mean, I'm sure I'm guilty of it. I'm sure I am. I know people have yelled at me. I'm sure that I've slipped up. But it's just the, I mean, the slippery slope of what's going on nowadays. Because people are just so thirsty for clicks. Yeah. And I understand. That's how I get paid too. So I get it. But it's just, yeah. Anyway. It's a tough, tough world out there. Tough world I mean, there. Uh, really, really, let's put my problems in perspective and move along. <laughs> so... Let's talk about two things. Firstly, overall reflections on the season. And then secondly, any major plot lines they left out of the show that were in the book that we feel like, oh, man, not necessarily they should have included that because I feel like they packed about as much as they could have in the show. But, you know, is there something that we're like, oh, I kind of missed that, you know, or I felt that would have really helped Uh, characters or plot lines. But let's start with overall thoughts on the season. This still is my favorite season of Game of Thrones. I mean, just the whole... The whole subversion of the Ned plotline and, and our expectations of that uh, still remains brilliant to me. A lot of the writing is super sharp. Uh, mo- you know, Many chunks of it come straight from the book. And they just created this whole world out of nothing. And that just remains incredibly uh, impressive to me. So for all those reasons, I think this is still my favorite season of the show. Uh, and I'm really glad we did this. Your thoughts on season one, Joanna? Yeah, I think it benefits from being really loyal to the book, honestly. And I think that's because this is one of the books that is actually adaptable into a season of television. Right. And I think the later books are not. So, you know, it's not like they got cocky and just decided they didn't need the books. The later ones are harder. Um, the second book is 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 okay. But, uh, you know, the the prose that they just pull directly from the book and put in the show work it works beautifully. Um, and and to answer your second question, I, I can't even think of something that I just think it's glaring that they left out. I guess the only thing would be the Tullys, like more of the Tullys. 
but maybe I'm forgetting something bigger. But well, the one thing that I think the show really could have done a better job with this season, in the, with the benefit of later seasons, knowing what happens, is the mountain and the whole Clegane mm. family and their situation, because you know he's just basically a monster in season five. Uh, and there's a whole rich backstory to the Clegane's relationship with each other, and, and you know they, they used a different actor in season one, and so and you only see him for like one episode, but really the Clegane's are doing all these horrible things, like literally, um, the uh, is it Gregor Clegane, right? Yeah. Who's the uh, the mountain? Mm-hmm. Um, he is partially responsible for all the people swearing fealty to uh, Rob Stark, right? Because he's been pillaging all their villages and so on. Marauding, yeah. So I just felt like, oh man, there was a lot there that probably without much work, without much character work, they could have like established his character better. And then therefore had his return in this most recent season or the most recent couple seasons be more impactful. Um, so that was the only one that I that was particularly glaring. No, I think that's a good point. Um it's just making a big assumption. Um, but I wonder if they cast the mountain and they're like, okay, this guy is physically impressive, but not a tremendously good performer. None of the mountains I think have been tremendously great. Um, the most recent one is a very impressive physical specimen, but and he yeah. knows how to make viral videos as well. Yeah, he does, but he's not like a, a great, performer i don't know maybe that's unfair um i think he's the best of the three but the one they cast in season two is kind of this weird like string bang like he was tall and a better performer but not as physically imposing and um yeah i think you're right the the mountain has been a problem throughout if they had cast someone great in the beginning and made him more of a presence um, all of this would would have been uh, uh, landed a little better. Maybe and, they literally didn't even know that he would be a major character later at the time, right? Because the most recent book wasn't written by then, right? Uh, Oberon dies in the third book. So oh. That was definitely oh wow! Okay, wow. So he dies, like we he dies in season four of the show, right? Yeah. But season, but book three. So, yeah. yeah. Book three is quite long and was actually originally released in two volumes in the UK. So it was split sort of over season three and four. That's part of like when the ad- adaptation got really messy is having to split the huge Storm of uh, Swords books. Book. Other than that, the only things that stick out to me are like Kat is a pretty like a much better well-rounded character in the book than she is in the show. More, much more sympathetic, I think. Yeah, and there's much less sex position in the book than there is in the show. Yes, though someone um, on Tumblr did a, a an exhaustive, <laughs> detailed exploration of all the rapes in the book and all the rapes in the show, and uh, you know, including minor characters, right? And so. Uh, it turns out the books are far, far, far rapier mm. than the show. So it's interesting. Huh. All right. Well, on that note. <laughs> no, no, it's not it on that note. <laughs> <laughs> any, any other thoughts on the book versus the show? I'm, okay. Let's, let's ask this. Let's ask this. Um, so what are you 
can can you say what you're looking forward to next season? Is there, is there a plot line that <laughs> you're particularly keen on finding out the resolution to next season? <laughs> this feels like a trap. What can I say? There's some stuff in this book in next season that mm. I think is going to be very fun. Hmm. So stuff that I've already read, theoretically. Mm-hmm. Huh. All right. Well, but we didn't talk about it too much, so intentionally. I'm intrigued, Joanna. I'm very intrigued. That's my most delightful hint that I can drop. All right. Yes. All right. Uh, Any casting? Oh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in, I mean, you know about some of the actors who are in next season, right? Uh, some, but I, I try to stay away from that news. So probably not, actually, is the answer to your question. Really? Not even the big names? No? No. I got nothing. Wow. I got nothing. All right. I'll, I'm shutting up. All right. I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> so in terms of next season of Game of Thrones, uh, is there going to be a Cast of Kings recap? I, I would say the answer is most likely yes. I, I can't see any reason why not. I'm not sure how we will fund it yet, uh, whether it's going to be Kickstarter or sponsors or both. Uh, but subscribe to this feed and tune in a couple weeks before the next season begins. And you should see... Uh, you know, uh, new episodes pop up prepping us for the next season, and I think that's uh, that's about it. Any anything else we want to say, or shall we shall we wrap it up there for uh, for a few months? That's it until 2016. Thanks for listening to us, and uh, hope you guys had a fun time rewatching and rereading season one of Game of Thrones. Uh, and hope you will patronize the lovely sponsors we had this season that helped make the show possible. And yeah, thanks so much. Again, always email us at acastofkings at gmail.com. Find more of our episodes at gameofthronespodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash acastofkings. And we'll see you guys for season six of Game of Thrones. <laughs>